All right, man. Welcome to the introduction for episode 87. Jason Lingren is with me. We will be talking about the decade that is the 80s. Such a kind of critically important transform, transforming decade. Um, the decade of the 80s kind of came on the tail of what was begun in the 60s, in my view. In the 60s, there was a whole social programming thing going on to shift the mindset um, for nearly the first time. Uh, for all people who lived in America to begin to think about what America was in a different way. They were degrading uh, the greatness in the minds of the people. The media does it. Every, any number of things does it. From the beginning of the early parts of the decade when we supposedly lose a president up into the hippies movement. But the hippie movement has a counterpart in the 80s called the yuppie movement. Uh, most people have forgotten about. And while the hippies were these long-haired, dirty, rock and roll driven drug addicts um, as they were portrayed the yuppies were the exact opposite the polar opposite yuppies were wearing very nice suits they were having good jobs and they had a lot of money but then again the whole decade of the 80s for some reason money was much more available in the United States of America in the 80s and it needed to be because the 80s was going to kick off a party that was going to go nearly 10 years and I'm not even kidding it was full on. And as I say in the beginning of the episode, this does kind of echo the Luciferian mindset in many ways. The kind of idea of me, um, a self-centric kind of generation being formed out in the 80s. Um, after all, it, it, you know, decades later, they would refer to the 80s as the me generation or the me decade. Um, it's a true thing. I was there. I saw it. All the things that came to bear in the 80s, in my view, are a dividing line in the sand from the way things used to be before the modern technical age and the way things would be later. But in the 80s, so much of the kind of forward-looking, long-game social programming comes in on us hard. Um, it's not just that personal computers and gaming and all these things are coming to bear, cell phones, any number of things that Jason and I will cover – there's this kind of, at the time, it wasn't a tangible sense of anything. Most people were clueless to what was going on. But we will cover the events that kind of start to shape. And, you know, I've said it so many times in the past few shows where Reagan stands up and claims that the future of this country is not for the faint of heart, but for the brave. Um, in many ways, that's a true thing. There are some bold things done in your face in the 80s um, from the movies like Back to the Future where it's pre-echoing the events that will happen the first year of the new century um, all the way up to things like shuttle disasters and other things. But anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lingren and cover the 80s. In my view, the transforming decade that brought us to where we are now. And I would point out that you know some of the things that we attribute um, to the modern age is censorship 1984 was in the middle of the 80s decade that, that carries the moniker and the title for the book that is all about Big Brother and censorship. Um, we're 33 years after that now. Right now, we're 33 years after 1984. But it's a strange dichotomy. Anyhow, let me quit rambling. Let's jump in with Jason. 
Let's let's go at the 80s. There it is, man. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 87. I have Jason Lingram with me, and we are going to talk about the decade that changed everything, uh, which would be the 1980s. Uh, very few people take the time to examine where the dividing line is to where we currently are and where we were. Uh, in my estimation, that dividing line is the 80s. Everything changed in the 80s, and we're going to cover these things. Um, and to boot, uh, the 80s, as we got into them, uh, was just a full-fledged party. Uh, it was referred to as the me decade, and I think that's true. And even the idea of Luciferianism that we've you know, kind of covered so much here, it's about self. It's about I want to do what I want to do. I'll do for me. That was really the sense of the 80s. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. Hello, hello. How goes it, man? Well, we're back to warm weather here in Louisiana, so I'm happy. Yeah, I wish I could say the same. We had a 40-degree day yesterday, but we're back down to some pretty chilly weather. Uh, not a lot of snow, so that's a good thing. But let's cover the things we got to get out of the way and jump right into the episode here. Um, I've had to reschedule with Greg Carlwood of THC for like the fifth time. Uh, this time it was on him, but that's okay. I did it to him last time. Uh, we will be getting together after the after Christmas. Uh, we'll do we'll do the show for Higher Side Chats. Uh, last night I did a show on, and I don't want to get this wrong, I, uh, with a group of people I probably wouldn't have ever had much to do with. They were very nice to me. It was a good show. We did two hours, and the name of that podcast is NFGR. Um, I probably won't say on the air what the F stands for, but at any rate, thanks, guys. It was a good interview. Having said that, I'm putting out a call to go out on more platforms um, and again, we're setting aside ideology. The world's flat. It's not. Aliens, not. Um, whatever. I don't care. Ideology is pushed aside as far as I'm concerned in these times of censorship. I'm looking for people who have at least a moderate audience because I just don't have time to do everybody all the time uh, to invite me onto their shows. And I'd like to come on and talk about the censorship and other things that are going on in our world. Anyhow, can you think of anything else, Jason? The, the thing here is let's try and get on some of the big ones. If anybody has any contacts at the more major shows out there, you know, they get into the millions, help us out here. I'm sure you want to hear Crow on, on Coast to Coast AM or Caravan and Midnight or any of these bigger ones that really have some sizable audiences. Getting Crow on there will make a, a substantial difference. Right. These are probably not places that I would typically have much to do with. Um, but I, I did do some, you know, I did like Ground Zero back in the day. Um, it's a little off the beaten path for me. But again, ideology aside, this is about talking to audiences and addressing the things that matter right now. So I'm absolutely right there with you. Um, anything else before we dive in? Now, nah, let's do the 80s, man. All right. Um, the 80s is a big damn deal. Uh, there is so much in the 80s that we're not even going to be able to cover um, but a fraction of the things that really began to shift our world into the modern age. Technology is a big part of it, um, but not just that, the moving of the chess pieces on the board. It's The 80s, in my view, is almost like they started this massive party, so everybody was just in party me mode, and all this stuff was going on while everyone was partying. And that party came to a roaring crash at the end of the 80s. Um, even things like Chernobyl. Um, and, you know, I should have looked it up, Jason. Now I'm thinking about the fall of the Soviet Empire, supposedly, is right at the end of that party in the 80s somewhere. Yes, uh, but I didn't look it up. Yeah, so. 1989. 89, there it is. It's almost, you know, like the scripted 
decade of our lives where you really begin to see the scripting. And Jason and I have covered the 60s. Everyone's aware of where the erosion of the kind of higher-minded society uh, the United States had been really came under attack in the 60s with the hippie generation, the drugs, the music, all of it, media. Um, but by the time we get up to the 80, chess pieces are flying across the board. And that's what we're going to begin to point out here. Anyhow, over to you, Jason. After the end of World War II, America had the general notion that it was the greatest nation on Earth. Moving forward, the decade of the 1950s painted a picture of an America that was strong worldwide, very family-oriented, and as happy as can be. Slipping into the 1960s and with the presidency of JFK, we have bold proclamations being made about the greatness of America and the amazing decade ahead. The golden age that was promised never actually came about, however, with one tragedy after another, no doubt the majority of which were planned ahead of time, disrupting the peaceful sleeping masses, even though the glossy, colorful veneer that was layered over the entire decade of the 60s would try to convince you otherwise. So I think it's critical that you stepped back a decade or two to point this out. There was a sense in the 50s and even into the 60s a little bit that America was the greatest thing that had ever been on the face of this earth. And it wasn't just the mindset of the people uh, like my grandparents, so proud to be American, so proud of their government. Um, this is where it all begins to start tumbling down. Even the Vietnam conflict, you know, first time America loses at anything, then the hippie movements and all this other nonsense that rolls into the coming decades, the Manson nonsense. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. The supposed assassination of a president. This is really the tipping point of where what was the greatest thing on the face of this world, the, the mindset about what America is, is starting to be degraded as we roll into the 70s. Anyhow, back to you. And let's not forget that the people having children in the 60s were now growing up in the 80s. That's right. That's going to be a big part of this because so many of the people uh, in the 60s and the peace, love kind of hippie flower generation do get up into their 30s and older uh, by the time the 80s comes. And there is a tectonic shift coming with that. And then let's not forget they had children and those children would be being raised in this time of deceit. Right, which is a big reason for shows like this. Um, there are a lot of people out there that listen to the shows we do that have no sense of things before the Internet. And that's a, one of the major reasons for covering this, um, because there truly was a different world out there that I marked before the 80s. And technology comes to bear hard. The personal computer, we're going to run down some of the technologies that first appeared in the 80s that really set the stage for where we are now. The 1970s were a stark contrast to the technicolor wonderland of the 1960s. Everything took on a gray, gritty, drab harshness, a look and feel that decimated the synthetic happiness of the previous decade. Everything from the sound of the music to the look and feel of the media, they had what appears to be an intentional opposite effect. The elite began the real stripping away of the industrial base in the 1970s, yet somehow, through mass social engineering, they convinced everyone that everything was one great big party to go to as the 1980s dawned. It's a good point, Jason, how you open up with the stark contrast in the Technicolor. So many people can remember uh, even what Hollywood was pushing out. These kind of gritty, realistic, kind of drab movies like The French Connection. There were a whole slew of them um, in the 70s that really did have a very drab, gritty feeling. Um, it's, it's almost like technology could have been further ahead in the 70s, but what they were showing us was a more base, kind of gritty version of it. But anyway, Anyhow, back to you. 
And I've addressed this before, but I can tell you as as a studio engineer, I hear things on the media being released at the time that don't make sense to me. I I know that the consoles and things that were being developed in the 70s should have sounded better than some of the stuff in the 60s, yet I'm hearing the opposite. Well, we're going to get into that uh, as CDs come on the scene. Uh, The compact disc comes on the scene. Uh, You and I will begin to cover a bit of that. Uh, The truth is, is that back in the day, in the 70s, when we were playing music on LPs, it was a much richer sound. Um, It's hard to describe to what everyone else was introduced to by the time we were convinced that CDs uh, were digital and better. But let's, let's save that for when we get there. Now, into the 80s. Let's start with one of the most important icons of the 1980s. The 40th President of the United States, Ronald Wilson Reagan. His career in the entertainment industry began with doing radio announcements for the Chicago Cubs in 1932. In 1937, he began his movie acting career and made numerous films rising to star status until he was ordered to active duty with the U.S. Army in 1942. He would take part in the first motion picture unit. So there's the trifecta, Jason, the the coming president, a big damn deal president of the United States uh, is connected to the the sports, the Chicago Cubs. He is a Hollywood actor, an A-list Hollywood actor, and he's also in the military industrial complex. There's the trifecta. Ronald Reagan... I think few people understand what he represents. And in the movie Back to the Future, which also came out in the 80s, which was basically made to pre-echo the coming events of 9-11, um, so much of Ronald Reagan made of that movie. They, they make fun of us in that movie uh, when Doc Brown asks Marty, who's the president in the future where you come from? And he says, Ronald Reagan. And Doc Brown laughs, making fun of us all. How could it be that a Hollywood actor could possibly be president, even making a quip, you know, who's the VP, Jerry Lewis or something like this? This is an in-our-face tectonic shift from the way things used to be in a higher-minded kind of United States mindset to where we came when suddenly it was okay to put a damn actor from Hollywood from bed, you know, and he'd been in movies like Bedtime for Bonzo and any number of big Hollywood productions. And all of a sudden it was okay to make this man president. It's a big deal when you take it apart. So he was part of something called the first motion picture unit, the FMPU, which would later be called the 18th Army Air Forces Base Unit. It was the primary film production unit of the U.S. Army Air Forces during World War II and was the first military unit made up entirely of professionals from the film industry. It produced more than 400 propaganda and training films, which were notable for being informative as well as entertaining. Films for which the unit is known include Resisting Enemy Interrogation, Memphis Bell, A Story of a Flying Fortress, and The Last Bomb, all of which were released in theaters. Veteran actors such as Clark Gable, William Holden, Clayton Moore, and future President Ronald Reagan, and directors such as John Sturgis served with the FMPU. The unit also produced training films and trained combat cameramen. FMPU personnel served with distinction during World War II. So here it is, man, the marriage, uh, the proven marriage of Hollywood with the military industrial complex. And, you know, part of this, you're talking about this unit training a combat cameraman. And so often I have brought up on this podcast things like Pearl Harbor, Not What You Think, uh, the Midway, supposed Midway documentary that is claimed to have been shot in combat. And I will maintain to this day there is zero 
real combat filmed in that. What you're looking at here is the open admission that there is an absolute connection between Hollywood, our government, the president, the coming president, Ronald Reagan, and the military-industrial complex um, that would be warned in our face by Eisenhower as he left office saying, you guys better watch out. Uh, this military-industrial complex thing can get out of hand, and you guys won't be able to do anything to stop it. But it's a bit worse than that, isn't it? Here we have all the information systems in bed with each other, Hollywood being the major purveyor of information at the time. While at the FMPU, Reagan is said to have kept a film reel that depicted the liberation of the Auschwitz concentration camp, with the implication that he believed that doubts would occur someday as to whether the Holocaust had actually occurred. He is said to have made mention of this film reel to an Israeli prime minister during his presidency, as well as shown it to his son, Ronald Jr., when he was only 12. So, I mean, come on. Um, you know, we're being told Reagan's, you know, a, a dog face army guy, but yet somehow he gets to keep the reels uh, that are being made by this unit. But what's really striking about this is he believes that the world will have doubts about the Holocaust, really. So, as I have said so many times, a human being cannot make a true thing false, and a human being cannot make a false thing true. They can give the appearance, they can tell the lies, they can do any number of things, but they cannot actually change what is true. And here, you know, Jason, I think at some point, even though we know we're under the gun with censorship, we're going to have to go at the whole concentration, you know, uh, camp idea. As a matter of fact, in the forum over at Crow 777 Radio, people were just digging up the old accounts that precede World War II, where on three occasions prior to World War II, newspaper clippings from around the world are claiming that six million Jews had been massacred. Uh, this is a reoccurring theme. We're going to have to challenge this at some point, and I think this bullet point really shows the reason why. Anyone who had actually filmed a real event like this, why would they have any reason to believe that the world would doubt it at some point? Um, I'm incredulous, to say the least, Jason. I think something went on. Uh, there, there's too many people who discussed it, but it, it seems that it didn't happen to the degree or in the way that the mainstream has portrayed it over the years. We'll have to make a point at some some future point to go back and look at the Holocaust ideas. But when we can show that there are three prior claims using the exact same number, six million people being killed, um, it, it tells a tale. Not sure what that tale might be without taking a very careful look. And these are the types of topics you have to dance around carefully. After all, Jason, it was not too long ago my YouTube channel was shut down for hate speech. And you know damn well talking about things like these, even in an adult way, will be, at the very least, you know, fuel for the fire. Oh, absolutely. During the later 1940s, Reagan and his then-wife, Jane Wyman, provided the FBI with the names of actors within the motion picture industry whom they believed to be communist sympathizers. Though he expressed reservations, Reagan said, do they expect us to constitute ourselves as a little FBI of our own and determine just who is a commie and who isn't? Reagan also testified on the subject before the House Un-American Activities Committee. A fervent anti-communist, he reaffirmed his commitment to democratic principles, stating, I never, as a citizen, want to see our country become urged by either fear or resentment of this group that we ever compromise with any of our democratic principles through that fear or resentment. 
So here we see it, Jason, you know, creating the boogeyman out of thin air. Uh, that's what the Cold War was. You always have to have an enemy. In the modern era, the enemy is the nonsensical terrorism, which can never be defeated, ever, ever, ever. It's not an enemy, it's an idea. But back in this time, we still had ideas that were actual enemies you could point to on the map, even if they were made out of whole cloth. Um, and here we see Hollywood pushing it all the way up into our government. Uh, we have the words that tell us what's going on here, the programming, the House on Un-American Activities, and other such branding monikers that show the game here. Um, one thing we know is that there always has to be an enemy. And, you know, recently I saw this thing uh, where people were taking a look at the CIA, uh, claiming one of the main things the CIA did was to show, to change mindsets of people to harbor hatred and fear. And what this allowed is for the military industrial complex to constantly be built up because there's always this enemy and we're going to have to kill these bastards and this mindset, which implies that without all this programming, human beings probably would not have this kind of hate-based view of other parts of the world and would come to common sense to say, hey, people in Russia are people like me. They have kids, they have families, they probably have the same hopes as dreams as anyone I know in this part of the world. But yet, this programming, which is part and parcel of what we see in this bullet point, has in fact sown the seeds of hatred in the hearts of so many people who will buy into there's an enemy there that we might have to go up against with the military. So there's all that. We also see the early ties with Reagan to the intelligence community here as well, something that's very notable. Right. And it's just crazy to think about. I mean, people should go back and look at the movie Bedtime for Bonzo, where Reagan's acting with a chimpanzee. Um, it's a bit telling. It's a bit of a slap in the face. But it's hard to imagine at what point uh, the mindset in this country had shifted so much that it was suddenly OK to put an actor in the supposed lead role of this country. It's it's stunning to look back at now. Reagan was president of the Screen Actors Guild for many years off and on, and later he got into television by the 1950s, and this is also when he began getting into politics. He was the governor of California from 1967 until 1975. He declined to run for a third term and would run for the Republican presidential candidate for the 1976 election, but he lost the nomination to incumbent President Gerald Ford. Ford, in turn, would lose to the Democratic candidate, Jimmy Carter, whom Reagan would take the presidency from in the next election. So here's the tee up. Um, Jimmy Carter becomes president. And for those who are alive and remember back, almost everything humanly possible to make Carter look like a weak failure was done to the Carter presidency. In my view, the reason for this is the tee-up of the coming Reagan. They're going to get their boy in. They're going to get their man in place, this actor from Hollywood. Uh, I don't think there's much of anything that, in from the news side of things, went right with the Carter administration, to the point where at the end of the Carter administration, supposed hostages are taken in the Middle East, and Carter launches this rescue mission, which is a horrible failure. Helicopters crash. People die. Nobody's rescued. And so then Reagan comes into office 
office. And guess what? All those hostages are just simply released because everybody knows Reagan is tough. Reagan is strong and you don't want to mess with Reagan. Um, this was all the stage setting to get their boy in place. And there's more to come. There is more to come to bolster Reagan's popularity in the minds of the American people to make this actor uh, supported by supposedly 75 percent of the populace here. Anyhow, it also seems that this was going along with the social engineering of these decades because Carter was portrayed kind of as not being able to get anything right, and that goes along with the rest of the 70s, how everything was kind of dark and shitty. And then in comes Reagan, and all of a sudden the 80s is going to be amazing. We've got this amazingly incredible guy who's going to be president now and turn everything around. Just seems like a huge setup. It is a huge setup. Not only that, there's all this kind of crossover. Like there were all these T-shirts back in the 80s when Reagan first took office where it was Rambo's body with Reagan's head and it said Ronbo. It was a thing. It was all over the place. I remember that, actually. Yeah, Ronbo, this tough guy. And so, you know, this this picture had been woven of Jimmy Carter, this peanut farmer from I think it was Georgia, if I remember correctly, who was weak and couldn't get anything done right, couldn't even get our people who were hostages in the Middle East out. And Reagan simply shows up as president. And within a number of days, they simply release him because the idea being perpetrated in the media is Ron's going to kick your ass, man. Don't mess with Reagan. He'll come nuke you right out of existence. You better let those people go. Um, that is the stage that's being set, but it's not quite enough. As Reagan takes office, his popularity goes down, 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 but we'll get to that with the supposed attempt on his life, which also has Hollywood ties, of course. Reagan was given honorary Freemasonry status being given a Scottish Rite Certificate, as well as a Shrine Certificate. He had direct dealings with many of the elite power structure groups, and Reagan's 59-member transition team when he took over as president was composed of 28 CFR members, that's the Council on Foreign Relations, 10 members of the elite Bilderberg Group, the lovely annual meetings that they do to get together and figure out how they're going to screw us over for the next year, and at least 10 known members of the Trilateral Commission. He was also an attending member at Bohemian Grove, and there's a very famous picture of him with several other presidents and other people that is floating around the Internet you can go find, as well as had the support of David Rockefeller. And let's not forget his VP, Mr. New World Order himself, George H.W. Bush. Bush almost became the president in 1981 with the shooting of Reagan two weeks after he took office. Okay, so I've already kind of talked about how Carter was this Casper Milk Toast figure in the media, uh, queuing up for the big buff Ronbo president that was coming in, the guy who was going to make America great, and you didn't mess with this dude because, brothers, he had Rambo's body. He was not here to mess around. So in 81, we are told that the president is shot. There's even footage that you can go look up. But of course, the same shenanigans we always see come to bear. Go look at the stories of the time. Go look at what you're being told about who did it. Apparently, this guy who wanted Jodie Foster, the Hollywood actor, to love him, shot Reagan so that Jodie Foster, the actor, would love him. Not even kidding. Go back and look at these storylines. But here's the real rub. If I remember correctly, Reagan had something like it was a very low rating prior to the shooting, something like 25 or 30 percent. When he comes out the other side of this supposed shooting where there was a supposed attempt on his life, what actually happens 
is the media begins to push that 75% of America overnight is now backing Reagan. And everybody who's been alive in this country understands that anytime they're telling you a president has 75% support of the country, there is a mandate that follows. What that means is basically the man can do any damn thing he wants because everybody loves him and everybody's with him. And that was all on the back of this, and I quote, supposed assassination attempt where a supposed gunman shoots the president of the United States because he wants the actor, Jodie Foster, to fall in love with him. Uh, you can't write this stuff, man. Uh, fiction doesn't hold a candle to what we're being told here. I invite everyone to go back and look up the footage and everything else that surrounded this supposed assassination attempt. And that sets aside that the real first gun control laws come out of the tail of that shooting as well, because supposedly other people are hit by the bullets in the assassination attempt, and they put forward bills that start to go straight at curbing gun ownership. Anyhow, Jason. Finishing up with Reagan, he was known for his occultist beliefs and was the first president to take his inaugural oath in the west wing of the Capitol building facing the Washington Monument, which is an obelisk. And let's also not forget his Proclamation 5696, which is 911 Emergency Number Day that went into effect on September 11th, 1987. So there it is, man. The big chess game. And the last bullet point, you're showing this actor from Hollywood who is now president rubbing elbows with the CFR, the Trilateral Commission. These are the highest organizations we can point to. The members of these organizations sit on the boards of the few corporations that are left in the world today that control nearly everything. Uh, and I mean nearly everything. But here is the same old game we see all the time. What's it say here? Let's also not forget his proclamation 5696. The very number of the proclamation of itself encodes 9-11. It's about the 9-11 emergency dial day, and it goes into effect on 9-11. What more do we need to say here? This is the chess game, you know, in spades. Not only the people he's rubbing shoulders with, but who he is, what he represents, and this last bullet point is just in your damn face. Is there ever a time when 9-11 was not being rubbed in our face in one way, shape, or another? And this is 1987, for crying out loud. 9-11 isn't going to happen until 2001. Let's move on and start talking about some of the interesting technologies that came about and pretty much became uh, social engineering weapons in their own right. Right. July 1st, 1979, Sony Corporation introduced the Sony Walkman TPSL2, a 14-ounce blue and silver portable cassette player with chunky buttons, headphones, and a leather case. I don't remember the leather case, but this is the description I got. It was introduced in the United States in June of 1980. The effects were, of course, extraordinary, and Sony would end up selling upward of 200 million units. This is where we start to see technology drawing the dividing line to where we have come and where we used to be. Prior to things like this, we were really in the analog age, and it was more than just being in the analog age. If you wanted to listen to music, you were probably in your car listening to a radio, which you had no control over what you were being served up, or you were at home with a cassette player or a an LP, an actual record. Uh, what this did 
can never be understated. It gave everybody the ability to choose the music they wanted to hear and hear it anywhere. And this is a big dividing line. And the problem is, is that so many people who don't remember a time before the Internet probably don't think what I'm saying is that big a deal. But culturally, it was a huge deal. It was a massive deal. And it really started to divide where we had been, where most services, you had to go to a place or be at a place to get them. And the Sony Walkman really begins to represent, hey, man, freedom. We can go anywhere we want and have our music, any kind of music we want, anywhere. And again, for the average year that has grown up recently, doesn't seem like that big a deal because they've had iPods their whole life. But back back in 79, it was a big damn deal. And I would further point out that it's released in the United States uh, as they come into the power of the sun at the top of its power at the uh, summer solstice. Let's just talk about what this meant. You had a reasonably priced device that anyone could purchase pretty much anywhere, a department store or whatever we had back then. But you could literally tune out the rest of the world by putting on these headphones and pressing play. This really hadn't been done before. If people wanted to listen to music, they had to generally be at home or at a club. And it changed the way children and teens and all that interacted with their parents because if they wanted to just tune out everything going on around them, they could. Yeah, it's a good point, Jason. It's a bit like this technology, the Sony Walkman, uh, feeds into the mindset of the 80s, which is me, what I want for me, the kind of Luciferian ideal that is pushed at us so often, where it's you, 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 whatever's good for you, screw everyone else around you, do what thou wilt, let that be the whole of the law, a very self-centric kind of materialistic uh, idea here, but this technology did this in spades because, as you say, one day we woke up in this country and everywhere you went, people had their earphones on. The world around them was tuned out and they were doing their own thing. And it's a hard thing to explain because so many people are so used to, you know, phones providing the music now with earbuds or, um, you know, iPods and other things. But back in this time, it was a tectonic shift, totally. Um, people used to walk down the streets and they were interacting with everything. And all of a sudden, everyone's got their headphones on. They're listening to whatever music they want, anywhere they want. And it's a very kind of pulling into a more self-centered mindset. And I, I doubt if many people are going to understand what I'm getting at here. But it is as if the technology itself was feeding into the me idea of the 80s. Yeah, it's easy to see when you think about it in this context how the seeds were sown for everybody having their face in their phones today. This really was the very beginning of that. If you wanted to just drown everything else out, you put your headphones on, push the play button. That's a good point. Uh, that, that's absolutely accurate. And there's another side to this, too. You know, so many of us are used to the modern era where almost everything made comes to us from China. And so much of it is junk. There is no quality in the manufacturing. The Sony Walkman was the opposite of this. It was such high quality. Um, when you picked it up, it was substantial. When you pushed a button, it felt like quality. When you shut the little cassette door, it feel, felt like a precision machine with some heft to it. Um, and that, again, is another good 
barometer from where we were. Things are still being made in the United States here, even though the Walkman comes from Japan. It was a time when there was still quality being put in the products. And not to, you know, as we get into the 80s, uh, cars are going to start being made out of plastic. There's a big shift about to happen here from the time before when quality and craftsmanship went into most of the things you purchased into what comes later, where everything's not made so well, as we see now with everything coming from China. And really, the 80s is when all that stuff started, too. Throughout the 70s, you still had predominantly made in America. The 80s is when you start getting the cheapening up of things and the, all the industry having been moved overseas. Uh, I guess the big corporations figured out that you can pay slave wages to slave workers over in Chinese slave factories. Yeah, I almost think there's a lot more to it than just business sense from these major corporations. If you take the car companies as an example, um, there's nobody in the world making more money than these car companies for the most part. That's not actually true, but people get what I'm getting at here. Um, in the 70s, the car culture in America was something to behold. Uh, we had the best cars. Everybody worked on their own cars. These were, a lot of them, very precision machines and beautiful in some ways. Uh, as we get into the 80s, I remember early in the 80s seeing some of the Mustangs coming out for the first time, and all of a sudden they looked like mom and dad's car, and the dashboard was plastic, and you know there was this shift about to happen. But in my view, Jason, as they start to shift all the manufacturing out of the United States, which really has its onset in the 80s, I think it's about way more than just business sense for a corporation's bottom line. I think it's the tee-up for what we see now, where almost everything that we used to manufacture is now manufactured somewhere else. And the reason for that is a country that cannot support itself can be easily put into dire straits. If you don't make things, you can't support yourself. You're dependent on someone else. Right now, we're dependent on nearly every other country for most of the things that we need to get along in the modern day. And I think what you're looking at here is the 80s as the dividing line where intent is being put in place to slowly drain away the manufacturing base that had been built up in this country for the coming decades later takeover of everything. Well, I have no doubt about it. The powers that be play the long game. And if they wanted to pull the plug on the United States, at this point they've destroyed so much of the infrastructure that they could. Everything is self-reliant. They've got people who don't know how to take care of themselves. And if the giant 18-wheeler trucks stopped refilling the Walmarts, uh, everything would be empty within a few days at most. And that's it. We don't make our own crap anymore. People don't know how to make crap. Everything comes from overseas for the most part. I mean, we're, we're done if anyone decided to push those dominoes over. You're, you're pointing at a very true thing, and it shows that we are on the precipice right now. On Twitter this morning, I posted an infographic uh, that someone had sent me that shows who are the biggest employers are in each state, Walmart. I think owns 22 states as the biggest employer. What you're pointing at is ultimate control. These are major corporations now who, like you say, if they broke the chain, people would be in dire straits in two, three, four days tops. Uh, it almost harkens back to the oil crisis, you know, almost like test runs back in the 70s where all of a sudden there's not enough gas for everybody. Um, and they're doing this instability thing, you know, this this scarcity idea. Um, we're there in spades now, Jason. We're there in spades. It would not take much to interrupt uh, how we operate now. And even if you consider things like something as simple as an ATM, 
where we're all reliant on a machine to get our money. But if the power goes down, guess what? Or the ATMs quit working, we would all be out of money in a day or two. Uh, I think this is all by design, and I think it's all fostering us up to the point where we're going to see the big push for the grand takeover of you know the beacon that is America. Because whatever can be done to America can be done to any other damn place in this world. Let's also not forget that during the completely engineered Great Depression of the 1930s, 20 to 30 percent of people were city dwellers and the rest were still agrarian. They were farmers. They still made their own food. Yet people were still starving to death in groves. Today, that number is flipped and it might even be even worse. So people don't know how to take care of themselves. If they pulled the plug on us, most people are going down. Yeah, I think this idea that you just mentioned plays into the idea of scarcity where I have real problems with how the population of this world is described. And I suspect the population does not fluctuate that much in the system we live. But, you know, when you get everyone into a city system, exactly what you said is true. What if we all had to go out into the wilderness and support ourselves now? The truth is most of us have forgotten how to do that, and it would be a nightmare to say the least. That is dependence, Uh, almost no different than being dependent on a drug, where if someone doesn't give you that drug anymore, you're going to wish you were dead because you need that drug. In some ways, city dwelling and all these systems and corporations that are providing everything are a bit like that drug, where if someone ever pulls the rug out from under that, there are going to be a hell of a lot of people in trouble nearly overnight. Hey, let's not make any jokes that this technology that we've got today is just like a drug. And those seeds for that were really (laughs) sown in the 80s. But today, think about that. Think about how much people freak out if the Internet goes down or their cell signal isn't working or pick something, man. Everybody is completely addicted to this technology, and myself included. If my Internet's down, I'm pretty ticked off. Yeah, it's by design. Um, Luckily, Jason, I've been weaning myself away from it for a long time. You know, when the economy crashed last time in 2008, I walked away from corporate life. I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with uh, Internet technology as I had in the past. I didn't want to learn code anymore, make websites, do all these things. I wanted to free my mind. And now where I am is I have a cell phone that I almost never use, and I cut my Internet time down to when I am working on what you and I do. Um, And I don't even surf, but you make a good point. Most of the population is completely addicted to the technology. And I think that's by design, too. It's just another level of dependence that could be pulled away from us uh, to exert control. It's also something they can hold over everyone's head if some sort of social unrest started going on. Well, I think the whole net neutrality is going to play into this pretty quickly. Um, You know, everybody wants to use that bandwidth, and I think we're going to begin seeing uh, how you have to pay for your bandwidth start to really ramp up to, I don't know, maybe something like what your cable bill had been in the past, where you're paying for bandwidth for a telephone, um, HBO, standard TV, this kind of tiered idea where you've got to pay, pay, pay if you're using data. That's where we're headed here. And so in some ways, it's an easy way to price a lot of people in this country out of having the same access we've always had to information. But we'll have to see where it goes, Jason. While I don't have a lot of faith in the general public, I also think that could be a double-edged sword against the power brokers because you push them too far. The people who are addicted to this technology are like the heroin addict who needs his next fix and doesn't have the money to get it. They're going to do whatever they can to get it. 
Maybe so, but I would estimate that the people that are pulling the strings are pretty freaking intelligent, and I imagine there's 10 backup plans for any eventuality. Um, we haven't seen, you know, even where we've seen them mess up on things like Sandy Hook and other places where it was just so blatantly obvious that what we were being shown is a staged version of reality, um, they, they didn't miss a beat. They kept on marching down that path, didn't they? So we'll just have to see what comes. I mean, I agree with you, but I imagine there are many plans in place. Um, and not only that, we've talked so much about data collection. With the amount of data and algorithms and data mining they have at hand, they can run models on anything they're about to do and get pretty good predictive capabilities about what the outcome might be. So there's that to think about. There is. I, I just think that there's strength in numbers, that if things fell the right way, they could go against the power brokers. I also think that they overlook the fact that most of the people who ha would have to implement the dirty work, since we don't have walking, talking robots like the Terminator yet, those people are also addicted to these systems and may not want to destroy the infrastructure or turn on their neighbors. I think that's one of those things that could go many ways. Um, what you're saying is key, Jason. Look at my YouTube channel. They took me out. You and I saw the language in the in the emails that were sent accusing me of hate speech, um, that I had crossed some zero tolerance line and engaged in hate speech, and there was no way the YouTube channel was coming back. But yet, lo and behold, enough people in this community s stood up and said, hey, man, not so fast. We're not down with this. What the hell's going on here? And look, my YouTube channel came back. So I think there's there's real hope in what you say, that if enough of us, enough of us just simply understand that as a community, if we stand up and refuse to accept things, there is a favorable outcome that can come to bear. Well, we have to have some kind of hope, man, or else we're doing this for nothing and, and we're just accepting that we're screwed to begin with. And, and I won't accept that. Well, it, as I have said for so long, this is an opt-in situation. If you can recognize what's going on as something you don't appreciate, you can opt into it or opt out. The problem is one or two people opting out probably doesn't have that much sway on anything. But when enough people get together and say, no, man, we deserve better than this, then that is a huge amount of pop, uh, power. The truth is, is that almost everything that is implemented is by sleight of hand and with fear and other things that are simply relying on changing mindsets, which implies there's actually not that much power behind the things we see, which implies that if with enough people stand up and say no, guess what? They're going to get their way. Well, this is what Max Egan is always saying. If you don't opt into the system every single day, for instance, using cash instead of credit cards and all that, they can't put the electronic grid in completely if you aren't going along with it. And I think there's, there's a lot of value to that statement. Yeah, it's a true thing. But even like I said, these are smart people. We got Bitcoin coming down the pike. You know, how much longer will we even have the option to use things like cash? And for so long, I've pointed out uh, all the jokes that have been pushed at people in sitcoms where when the robot uprising comes, ATMs will lead the way. Um, these are these are transitory times we live in, in the same way that the 80s is a bit of a dividing line from what was before and where we are now, we're kind of at a dividing line now where not quite everything is digital and online yet, but it's going to be damn quick. And when that point comes, uh, the amount of control that can be exerted will be overwhelming. But again, if enough people stand against it, there's really not much they can do about it. Um, the majority rules in this game. That's all there is to it. The problem is, is that the majority gets convinced of nonsense far too often. Bitcoin is something to be watched. That's all I'm going to say about that. They're putting in 
ATM-like machines everywhere, and there's now one I saw the other day at the Mall of Louisiana. So interesting stuff there. Keep an eye on it. Yeah, from my point of view, Bitcoin is human bait. That's all it is. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing. Uh, the next the next technology you're going to cover is a massive dividing line um, in the mindset of America before the technology and the mindset of America after the technology. VCRs, video cassette recorders. Although the technology to record television had been around since 1956, albeit it wasn't cost-effective in any way, shape, or form, once the format battle between Betamax and VHS, which was eventually won by VHS in the early 1980s, uh, the decade would have this technology becoming a social norm from that point onward, most especially due to the final ruling on January 17th, 1984 of a case that had begun in 1976 regarding VCRs or VTRs, videotape recorders, as Congress is calling them in their documents, making it all perfectly legal. At the time, over 8 million VCRs were already owned by Americans, with another 5 million in sales projected for 1985. The home video market was already flourishing and would continue to do so massively, a lot because of the same thing that uh, gave the Internet its massive boost, pornography. So to take this backwards, pornography is always the leading edge in any technology we see in the modern age. It built almost all of the technology that we see on the Internet was built on the back of pornography. Um, the VCRs and the camcorders are going to be the same thing. But there's a bit more to this story when you look carefully. First of all, you mentioned there was a battle between Betamax and VHS. VHS won, and it was the lesser of the two technologies. So this massive new technology that is going to give people an un dreamed of ability to record whatever they want. They used to call it time shifting back in the day, believe it or not. That's how big a deal being able to record television and movies was. Um, man, I don't have to be home at five o'clock anymore. I can just record whatever I want. Um, they literally had a word and it was called time shifting. But you see, the lesser of these technologies is what catches on, which I think is telling on the face of it. But when you begin to consider what all this technology gets used for, there's a few categories we can break it down to. All of a sudden, we have uh, the ability to watch any movie we want anytime. I can't really overstate what a big shift this was. Previously, if a movie we wanted to see wasn't in the theaters or wasn't going to be rerun on TV, we weren't going to see it. That's all there was to it. All that changed with uh, blockbuster videos and all these other things. But in the back of all the privately run video stores, there was an adult section. Um, and again, this is akin to what happened in the 60s with the kind of free love, sex, drug, rock and roll, the invention of the pill, where the degradation of what's acceptable to the public is going to come into play here on the back of pornography. And I will illustrate this by pointing out that when the pornography craze came with the ability of any person to film anything they wanted with a camcorder and then tape or play anything they wanted anytime, um, there were companies out there that wanted to get in on the pornography game, but they didn't want to be known for you know their main brand. Disney was one of these places. Disney was a huge purveyor of the porn movement that came with the VCR in the 80s. They launched, if I remember correctly, a company called Buena Vista, and Buena Vista had a lot to do with the onset and mainstreaming of porn uh, under the guise of having nothing to do with Disney, when in fact it was just another one of the many tentacled arms of Disney. But anyhow, Jason, that was a bit of a lengthy response there. But a very accurate one. Speaking of videotape, though, let's take a quick look at the camcorder. 
a personal use video camera, first for the professional and then the consumer soon afterward. In 1983, Sony released the first camcorder called the Beta Cam System for professional use. A key component was that it was a single camera recorder unit, eliminating a need for cables between the camera and recording device, which greatly increased the camera operator's freedom of movement. The Beta Cam used the same cassette format, 0.5 inches or 1.3 centimeters tape, as the Betamax, but with a different, incompatible recording format. This became standard equipment for broadcast news. Sony then released the first consumer camcorder in 1983, the Beta Movie BMC 100P. It also used a Betamax cassette and would rest on the operator's shoulder due to a large design limitation that didn't yet permit a single-handed grip like the ones we see today. Also that year, JVC released the first VHSC camcorder. Kodak announced a new camcorder format in 1984, the 8mm video format. Sony introduced its compact 8mm video 8 format in 1985. That year, Panasonic, RCA, and Hitachi began producing camcorders using a full-size VHS cassette with a three-hour capacity. These shoulder-mount camcorders were used by videophiles, industrial videographers, and college TV studios. Full-size Super VHS, or SVHS, camcorders were released in 1987, providing an inexpensive way to collect news segments or other videographies. Sony upgraded Video 8, releasing the Hi-8 in competition with SVHS. As the 80s became the 90s, digital technology would take over and greatly improve picture quality and sound quality, while at the same time significantly reduce the camera size. By the way, we forgot to mention the reason why VHS is generally thought to have won the format wars was because VHS tapes had more room they can record longer, even though Betamax was the superior sound and picture quality. Well, that's actually what I was going to address here. This is a prime example of a couple versions of the same technology coming out for the mainstream and the lower quality of those two being adopted by the people. That's a control mechanism in my in my view. For a long time, Betamax was used by professionals. Even after VHS had come out, um, if you went out to professional people using you know, video, uh, they were using Betamax. It's because the quality was better. So it's almost, again, like purposely, you guys can all record whatever you want now, but it's going to be the lesser of the two formats. All us guys that make TVs, documentaries, and movies, we're going to use the better one, Betamax. Um, it's hard to understand how we got one or the other, but one of the key points you make here is no cord, Jason. Um, when you wanted to film before this, you didn't have to have a cord, but you did have to go get your film developed, so it wasn't instantaneous. Up to this point, any way you wanted to film required a cord to the wall, and what really happens here with Betamax and VHS is people can record right now with no cord to any wall because there's a remote battery pack, and they can watch it back two seconds after they film. It. And that is a major shift from where imaging and filming technology had been to where it came. Absolutely. And this uh, this kind of created the whole home movie thing, people making their own fan films and all that. That sort of thing started in the 80s because it could now be done. It got a little expensive and the editing certainly wasn't like you can do today, but it certainly started that whole notion. 
Right. And also, it is the onset of being able to record things and review them. But in one of the last bullet points, you know, you kind of covered the court case where this actually goes up through the courts because uh, the people in Hollywood are saying, hey, man, all these people at home are recording our copyrighted material. And that's illegal, man. We own that stuff. How the hell come, you know, you've put this device in every household that allows them to record our content? That's a bit of a funny thing to think about because they come back with a five to four vote that it's in fact legal for all those people in their homes to record this copyrighted material and do whatever the hell they want with it. And if you think about that, in what world would that ever truly be the outcome of something? Here you have all this copyrighted material coming out of Hollywood and other places, and suddenly everyone can copy it and do whatever the hell they want with it, and yet the court returns that there is no violation, no law being broken here. I think it's a key thing to look at um, because it's peculiar. Anyhow, Jason. Well, it's definitely very interesting, but I think what it came down to is you're broadcasting this stuff for free in the first place. As long as the people recording it are only watching it back for personal viewing and not trying to resell it for money, then perfectly legal. But you can't, say, record a program and then make your own copies of it and sell it officially on the market. Right. That's kind of the arguments that you will hear. Uh, and also there's the whole how many can forget, you know, back in the blockbusters day, whenever you put a VHS tape in, there would be an FBI warning at the beginning of everything you ever watched. This all plays into it. But I'm just saying, um, you know, it seems like a scripted game from the get go, even to the point where all this copyr copyrighted material that was protected so heavy handedly up to a point. I mean, even if, you know, back in the day, if you were to have a business and you had one of Disney's characters painted on your business, they were coming for you, man. There were hotels that were shut down near Disneyland uh, that lost lawsuits because they were using Disney characters to advertise, come stay at our hotel when you go to Disneyland. The idea of what copyright was before this time was a wholly different thing. But I mean, now look where we are on YouTube with copyright. It kind of shows. So many of us are just replicating what's already out there and rerunning it, and yet we find ourselves in a copyright violation. But anyhow, Jason, we're coming up to the top of the hour here. Uh, do you want to push through any more or cover anything before we wrap up the first hour? Yeah, let's get this last one in here because in hour two, we're going to get into Silicon Valley and all the technologies revolving around computers and video games. Massive, massive social change throughout the 80s with all that technology. So, my last point for hour one. On Saturday, August 1st, 1981, at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time, MTV launched with the words, Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. Spoken by John Lack and played over footage of the first space shuttle launch countdown of Columbia, which had taken place earlier that year, and of the launch of Apollo 11. Those words were immediately followed by the original MTV theme song, which was a crunching rock tune composed by Jonathan Elias and John Peterson, playing over the American flag that changed to show MTV's logo, switching between various textures and designs. I certainly remember this very well. MTV producers Alan Goodman and Fred Siebert used this public domain footage as a concept. Siebert said that they had originally planned to use Neil Armstrong's One Small Step quote, but lawyers said that Armstrong owned his name and likeness and that he had refused, so the quote was replaced with a beeping sound. A shortened version of the shuttle launch ID ran at the top of every hour in various forms, from MTV's first day until it was pulled in early 1986 in the wake of the Challenger disaster. 
So here we are, man. The second British invasion, and make no mistake, the launch of MTV was in fact the second British invasion. Something like 80 or 90 percent of all the early MTV videos were coming out of Britain. For some reason, all us foolish people living in the home of Hollywood could not possibly make a music video. But to top it off, this is full spectrum programming of a young generation thrown in your face for the whole world to see. The whole idea of the shuttle and the moon landing, even in so much as having the representation of MTB being the moon man to program all the minds of the young generation to by proxy accept that we had been to the moon, that we go to space, that the shuttles were doing something that they were telling you they were doing. And it's all precursor to, of course, the coming shuttle Challenger disaster, which is also more staged nonsense. But Jason, what would you add? It just seems like more reinforcement of the narrative that they'd already been establishing for decades. Because think about what MTV did. This became the thing that the youth would go to every single day. So whatever concepts they were pushing on MTV, that's what went into those young minds. And that is a fact. And so we will close out this hour. I will reiterate again, since the shuttle imagery was a big part of early MTV, the Challenger disaster. If you go back and look at what the news is saying and what the people are saying around the the Challenger disaster, the first Challenger disaster, you will notice things like these. Um, This is kind of before the advent of 24-hour cable. So ABC, NBC, and CBS are saying things like this. The ice is removed now getting the word ISIS in there. I'm not kidding. The ice is removed now, and soon the Challenger will go away. Not go to space, not take people to orbit, go away. I will remind everyone that as the president selects the teacher that will be on board the supposed shuttle disaster Challenger, uh, her name is McAuliffe. When she is picked, she stands up crying on national news and says something to this effect. Although there is only one body going up, seven souls are going with me. She's saying this about a shuttle mission that is going to supposedly end in an explosion. So all knowing all this and going back and look at it, you tell me, are they pre-echoing what's to come? But to top it off, the actor-in-chief, Ronald Reagan, says these words after the disaster has supposedly happened. And I will also mention that in the Hollywood version of the explosion, you can see the mercury horns in the explosion footage. Go back and look. But Ronald Reagan then comes on, which I have reiterated many times recently, the future is not for the faint of heart. The future is for the brave, smacking everyone in the face that was at home crying. And there were a lot of people at home crying. The reason being, because they had a teacher on this, they had brought television sets into nearly every classroom in America to watch this fear porn. So what Reagan is in essence saying is the future is not for all you babies wearing diapers at home crying right now who have fallen for this fear porn that we put in front of you. The future is for the brave. We are the brave. We are the people who had the nuggets to go put this thing out in front of you and risk it all. So anyhow, Jason, that brings us to the top of the first hour. Is there anything you'd like to add before I close it down? Reagan's words were at least a lot more profound than uh, Mr. Virgin Galactic with Space is Hard.
<laughs> yeah, and what's funny about that space is hard comment is it's echoing the JFK we're going to the moon speech. That's where he's drawing that language from. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the first hour. As of the posting of this episode, there will be 87 free hours of content at crow777radio.com. I hope people will come over, check out the content, become a member if you like. Transcripts are there for members. Anyhow, that's the end of hour one for episode 87, covering the transitional decade called the 1980s. Anyhow, hope to see you over at crow777radio.com for the full show. Cheers. Cheers.